I've got some people in the back who have Bibles for you. If, if you need one, we have them. So just catch the eye of uh, one of the guys that's coming up the aisle with, with the Bibles. And um, love to have you have one and open up to uh, John chapter 15 here today. Let me offer a word of prayer as we get started. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hold your word in our hands, to study it for ourselves, to uh, be touched and transformed by your spirit's power as your word uh, finds its way into our heart. Help us to be responsive to what your word has to say to us today. We are grateful uh, to be able to take it and, and apply it in our lives. So help us to do that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So catch the eye of one of these guys if you need one of those. And we're going to be uh, in John chapter 15. It's page 752 in the Bibles that we provide here. Page 752. So when you ask somebody if they're going to heaven, what answer do you generally get? Ever asked that question? Uh, you think you're going to heaven when you die? What answer do you get? Generally get what? Hope so. Hope so, isn't it? That's the most common answer I get. And then when you ask them what they're counting on to get them there, what answer do you get? Pretty good person, right? I'm a pretty good person. Um, so what's it take to get to heaven? That question has been around for a long, long time. There were two major heresies in the New Testament times that tried to answer that question. Very different answers. Uh, one of those heresies was called the uh, Judaizers. These were people who, who wanted you to follow the law of Moses uh, to the letter. And if you did that well enough, then, then maybe you could go to heaven. Uh, the other group was called the Gnostics. They were more Greek and philosophically oriented, and uh, they had these secret formulas. And, and if you knew the right secret formula, maybe you could get there. So for the Judaizers, uh, getting to heaven was a matter of what you do. And for the Gnostics, it was a matter of what you know. Judaizers would work and work and work and wonder if they'd ever worked hard enough, ever done enough to merit salvation. The Gnostics would try to accumulate secret wisdom and hope they had uncovered the right secret knowledge and gotten what they needed for salvation. But think about both of those answers, both of those approaches. What's missing? What's missing? What's missing entirely is, is really what John chapter 15 is all about, and that is relationship. Relationship is entirely missing from this approach that says, if I do enough, maybe I can get there. Or if I know enough, maybe I can get there. And if you think that that is just ancient history, you need to know that both of those heresies are alive and well today. The Judaizers show up today in people who think they can earn their way with God. This is a big group, big, very diverse group, actually. Line them all up, and at one end of that line will be some very religious people who think that God is impressed with what they do. At the other end of that same line 
are some very irreligious people who don't think much about God at all, but figure they're better than Hitler. I don't know how he got to become the standard, but they, they've never done anything that bad, and so they're probably okay. Both ends of that spectrum are anchored in what we do. I think I've done enough. Well, I think I'm not that bad. It's what I am, what I do. But either way, it comes down to that same formula that the Judaizers used. What do you do to earn your salvation? And so the modern-day Judaizers are, are right there. It's just the same heresy revisited. The, the Gnostics show up today in people who think that if you know the secret handshake, right, if you have this little knowledge about God, if you know the right formula, if you say the right words, if you pray the right prayer, then you're in. It doesn't necessarily need to mean a whole lot to you. It doesn't need to change your life. But if you said the right words, if you prayed the right prayer, you can count on that. And if God ever asks you why he ought to let you into heaven, you just point back to the day that you prayed the prayer. Now, I would submit to you that that is the old Gnostic heresy resurfacing again. Know the secret handshake and you get in. Both of those are with us today. Both show up in something that Jesus said and that actually Matthew recorded in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount there. And in verse, verses 21 to 23 of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now think about that for a second. If you say the right thing, you pray the right prayer, you get in, right? And Jesus says, uh, -uh. Not everyone who says these words is going to get into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That's impressive. Have anybody been prophesying lately in here? Um, and in your name drive out demons? Done that? Done that? No, me neither. And in your name perform many miracles? Anybody? No. I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So people who think that they can say the right words or do the right things and somehow merit God's favor, God says to them, wait a minute. You had no relationship with me. It all comes down to relationship with God. God is relational. He's personal. He wants relationship, not performance. He wants relationship, not manipulation. Throughout Scripture, he is constantly looking to reestablish relationship with lost, fallen humankind. Salvation isn't a matter of what you do. It's not a matter of what you know. It's a matter of who you know, because God is relational, and he wants a relationship with us. It's all about relationship with him. Now, we occasionally get a glimpse of relationship with God the way it's intended to be. Before sin entered the world, we find Adam walking with God in the cool of the garden. That's relational. Abraham was called the friend of God. 
It's relational. We hear David say, the Lord is my shepherd. That's relational. We hear Jesus say, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. That's relational. Last week, we looked at what it meant for Jesus to say, I'm the true vine. And today, we're going to complete the sentence, and my father is the gardener. Last week, we saw Jesus telling us about himself. This week, we're going to look at Jesus telling us about the relationship between himself and his father. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. Now, when we see God described as the gardener, right away we, we want to jump to, well, what, what does the gardener do? What does he do? Uh, we look at him cutting off bad branches, pruning good ones. We start thinking, oh, no, is he going to cut me off and all of that? We'll get to that. We'll get to that. First, we need to understand that before Jesus tells us anything the gardener does, he wants us to know that everything he does is based on relationship. This passage gives us some insight into that relationship. Let's just take a look at the first two verses of John chapter 15, page 752 in the Bridge Bibles. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. First thing that this tells us is that the father relates to the son as the gardener to the vine. Jesus says, I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. Other versions say my father is the vine dresser. The vine dresser. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of, of one who cares for the vineyard. His occupation is caring for the plants in the vineyard, constantly working on them, wanting them to be as fruitful as they can possibly be. That's how Jesus describes his father. The father has done this vine dressing job before with his vineyard Israel. In Isaiah chapter 27, verses 2 and 3, it talks about this gardener with his first vineyard, Israel. And he says, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. Think about that for a second. This, this I is emphatic. He's saying, I myself am doing this. I care for my vineyard. I'm personally involved. I, the Lord, watch over it. Literally, I, the Lord, am its keeper. It's him. He's personally involved. Every moment I water it is the literal rendering of that. I water it continually. He personally provides for it constantly. And he constantly protects it as well. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. Constant, day and night. He who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. His personal involvement for his vineyard, and yet, despite all of that personal involvement, despite that personal care that 
vineyard failed. It didn't prove to be the fruitful vine God wanted it to be. And so now we look at John 15 and we see the true vine has come. The true vine. And he tells us that his father is the gardener. Jesus is that true vine. He is the healthy rootstock that branches like us can be grafted into. And God the Father is the master gardener who does the grafting and who tends the vineyard. Watched a video this week on YouTube about vine dressers and grafting grape uh, shoots into, uh, into a vine, into a, a healthy grape plant. Um, that piece that is grafted in is called a scion, S-C-I-O-N. I see cars with that name on them these days. That's, it, it, it's basically a stick with a couple of buds on it that have potential, but nothing more. Left to itself, it's done. It, it, it'll die. But grafted into healthy rootstock, it finds life and, and leafs out and, and eventually bears fruit. I, uh, this, this video that featured this guy grafting uh, this scion onto a healthy rootstock, uh, he was doing it because the climate he was living in was too hot to grow the grapes that that plant produced. And so he got scions from a strain of, of, um, uh, of, of grape plant uh, that could take intense heat. And he grafted it into good solid rootstock that could provide life for that stick. And uh, he, he opened up uh, the, the vine itself and he, he tapered that scion down and, and inserted it in there and wrapped it with a special tape all the way over that junction and all the way up that stick covering even the buds. It's a special tape that protects those things while they're developing, and yet in a couple of weeks, those buds had burst through the tape. They had found life in that healthy rootstock, and they were then able to go on to bear fruit. So it's this stick all by itself, though, has no life until it finds life in that healthy stock. And when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's saying, I am that healthy root stock. Finds life when it's grafted into him. And apart from that healthy root stock, we're just a stick. We have no life. But grafted into Christ, we find our life in him. In Romans chapter 15, verse 12, Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah calling Jesus the root of Jesse. He is that healthy rootstock. He's pointing to, to the lineage of Jesus coming through the line of Jesse, the father of David, and into the Davidic kingship. And he says, again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. This healthy rootstock is one that can take wild plants, let them be grafted into him to find life. 
We get grafted into the true vine, the root of Jesse. We find life in him. His life flows through us then and produces fruit through us then. And it's the father, the vine dresser, the master gardener who superintends the whole process. He loves his vineyard. And his love for the vineyard is evidenced in how he cares for it. Get the picture of how intensely personal this whole thing is, how, how relational it all is. It's not just a matter of doing and doing and trying to impress him. It's not a matter of trying to manipulate him through, through knowing the secret handshake and all that. It is a relationship that he's looking for. And from eternity past, within the Trinity, God the Father has loved God the Son And out of that, he sent his son into the world to rescue us and to allow us to find life in him when we're grafted into this healthy rootstock. What's that tell us? It tells us God is for you, not against you. He wants a relationship with each of us through his son. And apart from him, apart from a relationship with him, we are just a stick without life. But he grafts us into this healthy rootstock, the true vine, and provides us with what we need. And even when we're going through difficult times, he is with us. We are united with him. And he cares for us even when we don't realize it. He will bring into our lives whatever is needed to make us fruitful It's natural for a gardener to want to bring out the best in his plants, even more so for God. He'll provide what's needed according to his infinite wisdom and according to his limitless resources. Who could be more interested in seeing the vine productive than that sort of gardener? So what will a gardener do to help us become more productive? Come back next week. We'll talk about that then. But in the meantime, just trust that your heavenly father, the gardener, the vine dresser, has your best interests in mind as he brings into your life whatever you're going to need to make you more productive for him. And that brings us to the second point, and that is that the son relates to the father as the vine to the gardener. The gardener provides for the vine. The vine trusts in the gardener. It brings us to an important consideration about the Trinity. And this is where the cults all miss the boat. God exists in three persons, equal in essence, and yet differentiated in function. So they're equal to one another. Each one is God exists in three persons, and those three persons each have a different function. To bring salvation, God the Son took on human flesh. He entered our world through a stable in Bethlehem. He lived and identified fully with us. He experienced everything we experience except sin. He experienced temptation more fully than we ever will. He experienced hunger and fatigue and sorrow just like we do. 
And then he took our sin on himself when he went to the cross for us. And all of that was decided within the Godhead, within the Trinity, before time began. They existed in perfect community from eternity past. Totally relational. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, willingly and voluntarily subordinated himself to the will of the Father to rescue us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, speaking of Jesus, says, Being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He did that willingly. He voluntarily subordinated himself to the will of the Father. Jesus speaks repeatedly throughout the New Testament about being sent by the Father, the Father who sent me. He says again and again. In John chapter 5, he actually said, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing. And in John chapter 14, he even said this, the Father is greater than I. And the cults all look at that and go, well, there it is. He's not God, but he is. They are equal in essence and yet differentiated in function. This is about functional subordination of equal persons. It's misunderstood by people who claim he isn't God. Jesus, the Son, God the Son, subordinated himself voluntarily to the Father, just as a vine subordinates itself to the gardener. It's submitted, it's yielded to his care. So when the eternal Son of God took on flesh, he put himself in a position of total trust in the Father, the gardener, like a plant that you would bring home and, and plant in your garden. What else could he do? He had made himself nothing. And we find ourselves in the same position, totally dependent on God. When we're grafted into the true vine, we are one with Christ and totally dependent on the gardener. So we need to see the Father as the trustworthy gardener who wants what is best for his vineyard. And we need to trust him like Jesus did. Now, the problem is we have this tendency to not put our trust in God until all the other props are knocked out from under us. You been there? How many of you have experienced that? I mean, we like to be in control. And we hold that position until we can't hold it any longer. But we need to know that we've got a good gardener who we can trust, and he wants to make our lives fruitful. If we're branches of the true vine, don't you think we can trust the gardener the way Jesus did? Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We can trust him. And in that trust, we can find rest and freedom. He'll produce in us what is pleasing to him. When we put our trust in him, we are free to be 
all that God intended us to be. We have an infinitely wise Heavenly Father looking after us. He can be trusted. He wants a relationship in which He provides for us and we trust in Him. Bottom line, it's all about relationship. It's all about relationship. God is relational. So how is your relationship with this relational God? Have you found life in Christ? Have you been grafted into him? Are you trusting in him? Or do you find yourself like the Judaizers trying to work harder to make him happy, hoping you can do enough to satisfy him if you live by all the rules? Or do you find yourself like the Gnostics, working your formulas to get your favors from him? You don't need to do that. What God wants is relationship. You can't impress him, and you can't manipulate him. Jesus is the true vine, and his father is the gardener. He loves you. He cares for you like a gardener does for his choice vine. He demonstrated that when he gave his son to save you. A friend of mine has a daughter who runs an organic vegetable farm, and uh, it occurs to me that, that we as disciples are organically grown as well. We're grown through a vital union with the one who calls himself the true vine. Salvation is not a matter of what you do. It's not a matter of what you know. It's a matter of who you know. Do you know him? Do you have a personal relationship with this personal God? We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here. John doesn't include the Lord's Supper narrative in his gospel the way the other three gospel writers do. Did you notice that? Doesn't talk about him uh, passing out the bread and the cup. But all of John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 take place in the context of the upper room. All of them take place at that last supper. And what John is doing is he's showing us this relational aspect of what Jesus did for us. He wants us to understand that God is for us and we can trust in him. Jesus invites us to come to him in this special time of remembering what he did for us. We take the bread and we remember his body beaten and hung on a cross. We take the cup and we remember his blood poured out for us. And this is a special time of remembering for those who are in a relationship with him. Now, if you're uncertain today about your relationship with him, please feel free to sit this one out. I'd be happy to talk with you after the service is over. We'll have some people up here to pray with you if you'd like prayer but I'd be happy to talk with you about how you can know that you have a relationship with this very relational God and can look forward to spending eternity with him. Maybe you're ready to step into that relationship right where you're sitting right now. You realize that you can't ever do enough to earn your way to heaven and you can't manipulate God so that he owes you something. All you can do is admit that you've fallen short of his glory and ask God on the basis of what Jesus did to forgive you your sins 
and to live in you, to graft you into the true vine so you can find life as well. And you can do that right where you're sitting. We're going to take a moment to quiet our hearts before God and to confess our sins to him, to prepare our hearts to receive the bread and the cup, these graphic reminders of the cost of our salvation. And when you are ready, you can come up and take one of these little kits and bring it back to your seat. And uh, you'll just peel back the cellophane to get at the bread and peel back the foil to get at the juice that's inside. But let's just take a moment of quiet reflection before we do. Quiet our hearts before God. Confess sins to him that would stand between us and him and tell him how much we are relying on him and the life that he alone gives. And then when you're ready, come on up. Father, we confess that apart from you, we have no life. We're just a stick that'll wither up and dry. And yet, grafted into the true vine, we find your life flowing through us, producing fruit. What a beautiful picture of a relationship with you. So, Father, we just admit our total dependence on you, the life giver. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in here this morning that hasn't stepped into that relationship, that person would do it right now and just say, Lord, I I want that life. I I realize on my own, I, I have no hope. And yet in Jesus, I have life. So I trust in you. Come, live in me. Bear fruit through me. Father, meet us in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.